My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors at Seven Mile Road. I'm excited to be here. Let me start by asking you a question. It's a question that you may not have heard since you were a kid. But let's start here. If you could, if you could go back in time, if you could hop in your, in your little kid time machine and go back and be alive at any point in human history, when would it be? That was something I used to think about all the time as a kid. Sometimes you see a movie, like I would see something about the Civil War and start to think about the dramatic events of that time and think, what would it be like to be alive at a time in history like that? Such a pivotal, pivotal time for our nation. Or personally, I, I love the old west of the 1800s, and I like to watch the cowboys or the old pioneers go settle the west. And sometimes I think, wow, we just, we just sit around in front of computers now. What would it be like to settle the western frontier? You know, the California gold rush or the, the unsettled states of the 1800s. Or from a, more, uh, like from a more spiritual perspective, I've often heard people give kind of the same type of wishful thinking about the church or other eras in church history, and they'll say, I wish we could go back to the first century and do church like those people did. They seem to do it right. Or people who have a more historical bent will say, I wish we could go back to the 16th century and be part of the historical reformations. Or I wish we could go back in time to the 18th or 19th centuries and be part of the great awakenings of those days. I wish we could be part of a move of the Spirit like that. And of course, we probably idealize those times and romanticize them to a certain extent. Um, and we forget that the first century was full of heresy and the 16th century was full of violence. But I think that that desire to be part of like a great time period in history still resonates with us. Some of you have probably read the Charles Dickens classic novel, The Tale of Two Cities. And that book opens up with these famous lines. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, and it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, and it was the winter of despair. And we think, what would it be like to be alive in a time like that? We'll keep that in the back of your mind as we go back into the 5th century before Christ, into the Old Testament oracle of Malachi. We've read the scripture already. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts. You might remember when we introed this series that these are not the best times for Israel when Malachi is giving this oracle. These are not the best times for the nation of Israel. Interestingly, however, these are not the worst times either. Israel is not on top, but they aren't at rock bottom either. They aren't being persecuted. The nation is not totally given over to idolatry the way it has been at other times in their history. It's the 5th century. We are long removed from the glory of Solomon. His incredible temple, the days when Israel was well-known and well-regarded, we're past those days. We are past even the destruction of Solomon's temple and its subsequent rebuilding. The people have seen the rebuilding of the temple. They've seen all the excitement that that produced, 
Now they're into their routine. They're kind of muddling along. Their worship of God has lost the zeal of Solomon's days. It's lost the zeal of the rebuilding days. And I wonder if we ask the people of Israel at this point when they would have wanted to be alive, what they would say. Maybe some of them would have pointed to the days of Moses and said, they would have talked about when the power of God delivered the people of Israel and brought them across the Red Sea and took them out of Egyptian slavery. Or maybe some of them would have pointed to Solomon's days when the temple was glorious and people would come from all over the globe to see the glory of Israel. Or maybe some of them would have pointed to the days of the prophet Elijah and said, yeah, there were idols and persecution in those days, but Elijah called on God and fire came down from heaven. We saw the power of God. But I don't know if anyone would say, if I could be alive at any point in human history, it would be the 5th century in Judah. You know that time when God's people were so tiny, they were like a little dot on the, in the huge Persian Empire? Remember that time when the priests were so lazy and so indifferent that they led God's people by bringing in like lame animals and blind sheep? They brought the most useless animals they could find? I wish I could have been alive in the 5th century before Christ. It sounds epic. Nobody was saying that. Okay, They're just kind of muddling along. These are unspectacular people in an unspectacular time. In terms of redemptive history, this is not a climactic point. And remember, okay, we are headed into 400 plus years of unrecorded blankness, what we call the intertestamental period, before the arrival of John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus. Okay? That's where we are about to go into this scripturally unrecorded blank period. Things could be a lot better, but things have been a lot worse. And with that context in mind, let's pray. Father, Father, we long to come underneath your word right now. In all its power, in all its authority, in all its helpfulness. And we want to hear your word with the assistance of your spirit. Pray that you would help me in this time to be faithful, to be helpful, and to help us see more clearly the glory of your name. So please do this, we pray. Amen. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Let's get into this. The text starts out, for from the rising of the sun to its setting. This is standard language in the Old Testament. If you're speaking predictively, the rising of the sun. This language is meant to express something comprehensive and universal. Remember, we've been talking about sacrifices. It's not saying here simply that from the rising of the sun to its setting is how long it should take to do your sacrifices right. It's not saying that the multitude of sacrifices being offered should take the entire day. Instead, this is poetic language. It's expressing something. It's expressing the scope of the reign of God. For example, in the Psalms, the scriptures say, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. In the scripture that Dan just read, Psalm 113, 3 says, from the rising of the sun to its setting. 
The name of the Lord is to be praised. Isaiah 45 says, That the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. From the rising of the sun to its setting is referring to the entire scope of the universe. Remember, these people live in a time when most of the world is completely undiscovered. They have no conception of its magnitude. The majority of the physical world is yet to be discovered, but the prophet Malachi says, from the rising of the sun, speaking predictively, to its setting, the Lord's name will be great among the nations. I did a little research about the speed at which the sun travels, and very quickly I started to pull up numbers that had so many zeros, I was going to have to either bring in PowerPoint or like pull a whiteboard up here to write down, or start learning what comes after trillion. But let me break it down for you kind of like this. The sun, this is the most helpful thing that I found, the sun is traveling around the Milky Way at about 600,000 miles per hour from the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord will be great among the nations. The extent and the scope of the reign of God is what this text is getting after. The reign of God over the nations is something for us to marvel at from the rising of the sun to its setting. The text says that God's name will be great. So what does that mean, that his name will be great? We tend to think of name in terms of reputation. Like we say, someone has a good name in the community. That means they have a good reputation. They're well thought of. They're well regarded. However, when God says that his name will be great among the nations, he is not saying that he will be well thought of. He's not speaking of his reputation. Name in this Hebrew sense means something much more profound than reputation. Name speaks of essential being. It speaks of who the person actually is. So in the Old Testament, a person's name refers to their character. And I know that this resonates with a lot of people here because we have, actually in this church have a lot of Old Testament names. We have, we've had you know, Micahs and Isaiahs and Ezras and Phineas. And I keep waiting for someone to, Phineas raised the bar pretty high. I keep waiting for someone to just throw down and all I'm thinking is Habakkuk Co. has a nice ring to it. But, but when Malachi prophesies, when he talks about God's name being great among the nations, he's saying that the nations will know this God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. They won't just think highly of the Jewish God, Yahweh. They will lift up the name of the one and true God. That's what it means, that his name will be known among the nations that the character, the reality of God will be experienced by the nations. His name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to his name and a pure offering. So when we talk about offerings, let's understand our context here. An offering, an offering was only pure when it conformed to the stipulations that had been laid out in the law. In other words, the person who brought the offering had to be ceremonially clean, the altar had to be ceremonially clean, 
and the offering given must conform to Old Testament law. So, in fact, as we talked about last week, the priests were being judged by a holy God because their offerings were so impure. In other words, they were not able to maintain the standards for an offering that had been laid out for them in Scripture, and they were bringing offerings that were blemished or marred in some way, like we talked about the, uh, the animals that had been, were no longer, they were no longer giving their best animals. They were no longer ceremonially clean. Their attitudes had grown lazy and shoddy in the presentation of their offerings to God. And the priestly sacrificial system had become so pathetic that the previous verse says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Like, stop the charade that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God says, I have no pleasure in your offerings. So, given that, given the standard that this God has for offerings to be given to him, this is a radical saying. He's saying, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and pure offerings. So hear this, because right now, the tiny nation of Israel cannot even get their offerings right. Okay? These people, the people of God, they can't even get their act together to get their offerings right. So how is it possible that we're looking forward to a day when the nations will be presenting pure sacrifices? Think about that. We're pointing forward to a day when all the nations, the one that has no conception of this God, will be presenting pure sacrifices. A sacrifice that is presented on heathen land or on a pagan altar is automatically and categorically unclean. No chance, okay? It isn't theoretic, even theoretically possible under the conditions of the law for another nation to be presenting offerings or sacrifices that would qualify as clean under OT law. No chance. They're automatically unclean. So what is this talking about? First, I want to say that this text is talking about a future day. This text is not saying that unbeknownst to the Israelites in the first century, in the fifth century before Christ, there are actually nations around the world that are offering pure offerings to God. That's not what this is saying. Another explanation that a lot of commentators have come up with for this text is that the worship of those who do not consciously worship God is indeed worship of God because of its sincerity and good intentions. This is how a lot of people have tried to explain Malachi 1. In other words, worship of the heathen is actually worship of God because it is worship in sincerity, and God will look on that as worship in truth. This is a very prevalent notion in our day. So I don't want to skip over it. This is a time where I want to... One of the things that's so helpful about preaching through books is that it brings us to these points of controversy. I want to touch on this now. You've probably all heard some version of this, even if it hasn't been stated exactly like this. Malachi 1.11, this idea that pure offerings will be offered by the nations, is actually a go-to scripture for proponents of universalism. So when I say universalism, let me define that. That's the idea, okay, that ultimately everyone will be saved and will be with God. And when I say that, I'm referring to end results. Ultimately, everyone will be saved and will be with God. So according to universalism, the answer to the question, will everyone be saved, is ultimately yes. 
So universalists would say that the people of God, of other, sorry, that the people of other religions will find their way to God somehow. Some will do it by responding to whatever illumination that they have received. Some will come to Christ without even knowing it themselves. God will pull them in. In other words, anonymously. Their sincerity or their morality or their good intentions or worship of their culture's God will in the end be regarded as true worship of God. Others will suggest that though some will never actually consciously confess faith, never in this life repent of their sins, that in the end God will rectify their situation and spare these people from eternal punishment. So we have probably all heard some variation of that idea. Maybe someone will say to you, you know, we are all following different paths, but in the end we end up in the same place. But this is not, um, this has been presented in other ways that are probably familiar to us. Like one example of this perspective would come from um, C.S. Lewis, someone that a lot of us love and respect in his famous Narnia series. In the last book of that, uh, of that series, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis writes about a um, confrontation between Aslan, the lion who represents God, and a man called Emeth, who comes from a land outside of Narnia, who's always served the lord of his land. And in, the, in one of the climactic scenes, the man comes to Aslan and said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but I am a servant of Tash. And Aslan answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. So do you hear that? It's kind of that idea of your good works and your good attempts, even if they were not done in worship of God, will still be considered pleasing to God. We need to be careful to understand when we hear this, that this is more than an issue of numbers, of who will and will not be saved. This involves other theological commitments. When we talk about God's love, we can't separate it from his holiness. If we try to separate the two, we make a mockery of the atonement. And that's kind of what I want to say here, is that Malachi 1 gives us a fully developed perspective of God, whereas universalism is focusing too much on one characteristic. God loves us, yet he is holy, yet he is to be feared. We can't separate one from the other. Even in this one chapter, we see it. Malachi 1-2 says, God says, I have loved you. Malachi 1-11 says, my name will be great. I'm a great king. And the chapter concludes by saying that my name will be feared. God is near, but he is also transcendent. He loves us, but he is absolutely other. He's great, and he is to be feared. So proponents of universalism want to suggest that God will accept the incense or the offerings of every nation as though it was truly intended for him. But when we look at this chapter of Malachi, we see that God is angry with his own people because of their sinful sacrifices. It would totally weaken this argument and not make sense in this chapter if this passage was to be interpreted by saying that Israel's offerings to to Yahweh are unacceptable because they're ceremonially unclean and they're not being offered appropriately, but the offerings of nations that are ceremonially unclean by their nature and aren't even intended for God are actually pleasing to him. Furthermore, Malachi's also expressed what God is saying by saying, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. 
This text is not suggesting that our good intentions are somehow atoning, that all of our offering, just because they're meant well, are somehow bring us into right standing before God. This text is looking towards the future. It's presupposing a change. It's presupposing a change in the future so radical that it breaks down the current impossibility of pure worship coming from other nations. God is so holy, so pure, that the possibility of true worship of him was becoming impossible even for the chosen people of God, let alone the heathen nations. And God's passion for his own holiness meant that his justice could only be satisfied through the atonement. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And when we hear this text, we need to realize our good intentions, our worship, our morality, our sincerity, our hopeful optimism for ourselves, our noble ideals, they are utterly senseless and ridiculous before a holy God outside of the atoning death of Jesus. They are ridiculous before God outside of Jesus' atoning death. We cannot, and hear me, we cannot let our conception of fairness cause us to underestimate the holiness of God and the necessity of the atonement. We cannot. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. There is good news in this passage, but it is not the news of universalism. The good news is the prophecy of a joyous and miraculous change in our circumstances. It was coming. It was coming in the person of Jesus. Paul talked about it later, subsequently, to Jesus' arrival on the scene. And he says, remember, he's addressing the Gentiles. He is addressing the heathen nations that a few hundred years ago would have no possibility of coming to Christ. No possibility of ever having right standing before God. And Paul says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This passage in Malachi prophesies a day when the nations will glorify God and worship. But that possibility cannot be separated from the blood of Christ. It cannot be separated from the blood of Christ. Let's keep going with the conclusion of this verse. The verse ends with a reiteration. For not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You might have started to get used to hearing this description for God in Malachi. Lord of hosts. What is that supposed to mean when describing God? Lord of hosts. In fact, this title for God is used more often in Malachi than at any other book in the Bible. In this short four-chapter book, over 43% 
of the verses refer directly or indirectly to this title, Lord of Hosts. That percentage far outweighs any other Old Testament book. So we have to ask why. What is that even referring to? Why are we continuing to use that title? The title Lord of Hosts talks about the power of God. In other words, Lord of Angels, Lord of Unseen Armies. And that is especially applicable to these people who have no army. Think about it. Their nation is tiny. They don't have an army. They have no resources to speak of. When they go to offer their sacrifices, they have no, at this point, conception of even what they're doing. They are, as we said, unspectacular people in an unspectacular time. They are not, on a daily basis, accessing the power of God as previous generations have. They don't see how what they are doing even really matters in any sort of eternal trajectory. And to these people, God is telling them repeatedly, my name is Lord of hosts. When God refers to himself as Lord of hosts, he is telling them that his power, his sovereignty, and the scope of his redemptive plan is far greater than they are even capable of conceiving. It's not uncommon in Scripture for us to see that the power of God and the resources of God are greater than we're capable of conceiving. This title, Lord of Hosts, brings to mind a story in, um, further back in the Old Testament from 2 Kings. And in this story, in this story, if we go back there, the prophet Elisha is being pursued by the king of Syria. And they know that he's a prophet of God, so the king's made it his mission personally to just destroy Elisha. A whole army comes out and encamps the city and surrounds the prophet and his servant. And the text says that there were horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night. They surrounded the city. The guy's doomed. And when the servant of Elisha rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's no change in reality. Those those unseen armies didn't just arrive on the scene. They just saw them for the first time. The servant had his eyes open for the first time. That he was dealing here with the Lord of hosts, the Lord of infinite power, the Lord whose reign cannot be contained or controlled. The power of God was far greater than, than what the servant could see, and it delivered Elisha in that moment. The title Lord of Hosts even points us forward to an even darker moment. It takes us to Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Judas, his close companion, turns Jesus over to the chief priests. We know that their plot is to result in Jesus' murder. So in a final act of desperation, the story tells us that Peter, he sees what's about to happen. He starts hacking away with his sword and he chops off someone's ear. And Jesus jumps in and stops him. He stops his friend from defending him. Here in this moment when he needs defense the most, 
when it seems like he so badly needs to find a way of escape. And Jesus says, do you think that I could not appeal to my father right now and he would call down more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Peter, put your sword away. Right now, here in the darkness in this garden, in my darkest moment when I'm being betrayed, know this, I am the Lord of hosts. There is no limit to my power, to my sovereignty, and to the scope of my kingdom, even now. So what does this all mean to us? That he is the Lord of hosts. I want us to hear this right now in this application. The advance of the gospel is sure and it is certain. And that has huge and important implications for us. First of all, Going back to my earlier point, it means we cannot put our hope in salvation outside of Jesus and his cross. Right now, I really want to say this to you seriously. If you are optimistic about the condition of your soul today before God, and yet your optimism is centered on your morality, your good intentions, your works, your sincerity, your conception that surely God will understand— I really want to discourage that optimism right now. Hear me say, there is no hope in Scripture for you outside of the atoning death of Christ. There is not. Okay? Run to Jesus and to his cross. And if you are in relationship with people that want to try and tell you that they, their sincerity, their hopes, their morality are going to get you to the same place that you say that your faith in Christ is, it is not being inconsiderate of them to discourage that optimism and say, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for you outside of the atoning death of Christ. There is good news in the gospel, but it is not the good news of universalism. Secondly, we need to remember that the time that we live in, we might feel, honestly, we might feel that there, or have moments when we feel that we too are unspectacular people in unspectacular times. The time that we live in is defined less by our current events and our present personal successes as it is by the sure, the sure and certain advance of the gospel and reign of God. We are right now in between the cross and the coming of Christ. He will come again as king. And his returning may seem slow to some, but in this interim, the gospel is advancing. Jesus is king. His gospel is advancing. And we announce to the world with our words and with our deeds that he reigns. I was so encouraged this week when I heard from our brother, who some of you know, wrote and shared a story of how he was praying that the light of the gospel would appear to some of the people that he was teaching. He said an islander walked into the meeting and began taking notes and thought maybe he was just trying to learn some English vocabulary. And he came to them afterwards and said, God must have brought me here today. It was an honor to be with you here to worship God. The gospel advancing, even in remote places that we can't even conceive of, Jesus is king. We are his servants. We don't have to be some far off land to proclaim the greatness of God 
in words and in deeds. We get to participate in the mission of God. He is the Lord of hosts. He has unseen power. He is working together a redemptive story, the likes of which we can barely conceive. So I want to ask you, are you excited about the mission of God and the glory of God's name? Malachi is pointing us there to a giant vision of who God is. If you're not excited, then you should be praying like Elisha for his servants. Oh Lord, open our eyes. Open my eyes that I might see. Open my eyes to the Lord of hosts. We worship him now because one day every knee will bow before him. We worship him now knowing that that day is coming. If you're not excited about the mission of God and the glory of God's name, get excited because that's where this story is going. That's where we are headed. The Lord of hosts, seen in glory, the redemptive narrative of his story unfolded for all all to see. One day, we will all bow before him. Let's pray.